Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Saltbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. Welcome on this rainy weekend, cold, rainy. It feels like winter finally here in Wilmington. Um, so I am, uh, we, well, I just want to say welcome, first of all, um, and there's probably some house lights at some point will somebody kick up for us. Um, I am in the book of Acts, and we are going to like look at and nuance just a couple of verses this morning in the book of Acts. We're actually in Acts 16, and we're going to filter Acts 16 um, through Hebrews 12 and Ephesians 4. How many of you know you can't interpret the Bible except... With the Bible. That's right. So we are going to do that this morning. We're going to interpret a couple of texts. And I am going to um, do something that is risky this morning because we are going to read through the text into something that is um, implied or implicit rather than explicit. Okay? All right. So uh, here's what we're talking about. We are talking about the discipline of God. Oh, my goodness. The discipline of God. And here's what I'm willing to bet is that most of us, and I'm not saying all of us, but many of us, especially in America, have this view of God that is an angry tyrant waiting for us to mess up so that he can, like, drop the shoe, right? So a lot of times, uh, even as Christians, and you may be here and you're not a Christian or you're a doubter or an atheist or somewhere in your journey, welcome, just join in here, we are this morning. But many times, um, Christians, when something negative happens, we immediately go, oh God, what have I done? Let me encourage you, that's the wrong question. We're going to open that today. Who is this God of love? Who is this God maybe that Jesus knew? How do we understand him even in the text? And what is, therefore, the discipline of God? So, are you ready? Now, the other thing I want to do is I want to open up um, and, and be vulnerable, which I do from time to time. I make some of you uncomfortable, right? But I want to be honest and vulnerable because I think as we... Um, meander into this text, it's just important that you understand sort of my lens or frame of reference, okay? So, some of you know my story, um, some of you don't, but uh, I was walking very, very powerfully uh, as a young person with the Lord Jesus. I had a a ministry that I led over at Hoggard High School, and even here at um, wherever we are, Rolling Grace Middle School um, in 1994, 95, then over in uh, at Hoggard High School, and uh, then I went to UNCW. I'm pointing geographically here, and then Hoggard, and then UNCW. Um, and at UNCW, I became a student speaker for a really well-respected, very mainline evangelical group. And so I was a student speaker and leader. And what happened over time is someone came through their staff pipeline, who'd been on staff for 35 years, amazingly. Um, and they began a movement within the larger movement that this group was part of. And it wasn't long before they veered off course and it became actually a cult. If if you've never heard me say that word, I'm sorry if that's uncomfortable, and I don't mean this as a cliche. It's like um, clinically diagnosed in a court of law. I could go into food deprivation and sleep deprivation. I mean, cult. It became, but it started, and then it, it, it veered off. Now, something I've never said on this stage before, but I want you to hear from me is that as part of my seven years um, in the bondage of this cult experience, I um, married the daughter of the person who was leading the cult. 
So some of you are sitting there doing the math, saying, hang on. Abby was not your first wife or marriage. That's correct. If I unpacked it all, which I'm not going to today, it wasn't a normal marriage. In, in other words, what we think of in the West, what you and I would largely think of, it was within the confines of an um, ugly and dangerous cult. And after being in it seven years, God graciously brought me to my senses. I came to myself, to use Luke 15, and I set some very small boundaries with the leader and leaders, and I was violently removed. And then this person to whom I had been married ultimately divorced me, and I've never even had a conversation with this person since. Now, there's all sorts of questions that that's going to open for you, right? And we're actually working on writing something so that all of this is written and you could know and understand. But I think the most important thing that I would want you to grasp and understand is that when we experience failure and sin at a magnanimous level, <laughs> it requires that we go to the cross and experience grace at a magnanimous level. I've got a friend, and he likes to say, he's, he's said it a couple of times, but he'll look at me and he'll say, Michael, I hope that I never have to experience grace like you have experienced <laughs> grace. I can't tell you, and I, I'm not going to linger on this a long time this morning, but I can't tell you the years of shame and guilt and I certainly never thought I would be a pastor of a church or ever stand on a stage because I don't deserve to be here. And the amount of guilt and shame to the point where I didn't even know at points if I could get up out of bed, if I could recover. And if I have to like look at my life pre-cult and then post, so I'm in, I'm in this thing from like age 19 to 26, 27, I'm now 42, I turned 43 in December. But if I have to look at it in um, context of sort of my timeline, before I was in this group, I had largely done everything right. And I was on a church planting track, and I was on a track to be in ministry. And I'm afraid that had God not allowed, and let me be very clear, because I don't think God caused what happened to me to happen. But I do think he allowed it. And if God had not allowed that by his grace, I think I would have pastored a very, very successful church and probably led people to Michael. And by God's grace, what he allowed in my life was for me to come to a place in my late 20s where there was no way to earn his favor there's no way to earn his forgiveness. I have fallen so far. There is no way to understand the life-giving grace and resurrection power of King Jesus except to cast the entirety of my life and journey on him. Now, the benefit, and occasionally people come up to me and say, oh, you were the pastor that was in a cult. Yeah. Yeah. 
But the benefit of having a pastor that was in a cult is that I have been Lazarus. I have been dead. I have been the woman at the well stuck in my own bondage and sexual sin. I have been Zacchaeus lying and cheating and hiding. I have been the disciples yelling and fighting over who is the greatest. And if I know anything when I open this Bible, I don't speak to you with empty knowledge. I speak to you from a place of having experienced firsthand the resurrection power of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I experience firsthand what it means to be fully redeemed. And I experience firsthand what it means to face my own demons, if you will, of shame and guilt. And I remember being a child and, or a young person, even a teenager, and looking at when and Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners, and going, what is he just exaggerating? And suddenly, here I am now, how many years later, and I am grasping the depth of my own sin and depravity before a holy and righteous God, and I am going, oh yeah, I am the chief of sinners. And when you encounter God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice and even God's discipline that we were going to talk about this morning, all of a sudden you can put your um, failures and your foibles into this place where you can bring them to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and exchange your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you. Remember when Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and he said, roll away the stone. They said, no, 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 no. He stinks. I know what it means to stink. So if you're here today, as we even embark upon a concept, a biblical principle of discipline, I want you to grasp that there is a place for you to find forgiveness, to find redemption. And the God of the Bible is a redeeming God. And the beauty of my experience and testimony is it matters not to me what you've done or what you've been involved in or what's even been done to you because the resurrection power of my Jesus is such that if you are willing to come to him and exchange your brokenness for his righteousness and you are willing to continue to live in that Jesus journey where you're experiencing the saving life of Christ, he will raise you up and he will redeem you and he will restore you and he will lift you and he will give you hope and he will give you purpose and he will give you future and there is nothing and there is no power on heaven in all of the heavens or on earth that can separate you from the vast love of this God in Christ Jesus. It's good news. If you don't grasp or if you're sitting in here going, I don't know if I want to be a part of a church of a guy that was in a cult or has failed to the degree where as part of that cult he was married before, I understand. I really do. It's okay. There's a bunch of great other churches in the city. I mean, I mean that. I'm not being ugly. There's some people who just won't be able to stomach that. On the other hand, I think there is a whole lot of people who don't darken the doors of a church because they're afraid that they're going to be judged 
and condemned and hated and judged because of their sexual preferences or because of the decisions they've made or because of the way they feel or because of failures in their past or because they've had an abortion or because they're living with somebody outside of marriage or because they're addicted to drugs or alcohol or something else. And there is a host of people on planet Earth. And it took me so long to come to grips with the fact that while I don't deserve to preach the gospel of King Jesus, I am worthy to preach the gospel of King Jesus because he paid the price for my sin. It is not about me. It is about him. And I want to welcome even you as a church or even you online who are listening. If you're sitting in the same spot in your own shame or in your own guilt, I want to welcome you to the resurrection power of King Jesus, to eat at his table, to experience the life of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ and the grace of Christ, and then to take your place as a member of the body of Christ who becomes a change agent to deliver the grace and the kindness and the love and the transformative power of this king to those who are lost. Come on. Okay. Everybody okay? If you're visiting with us today, you got thrown in the deep end. I'm sorry. There is a God, and I am not him. But I will point to him every chance I get. And from this moment until I breathe my last, I will do nothing but preach about the King of kings and Lord of lords and the redemption that is found at his table. Okay, we are going to read um, Hebrews 12 and Ephesians 4, just a couple little verses, um, and then we are going to use those to filter what we're about to read in um, Acts 16, okay? Here we go. You also know why I love the Bible. I've been in a cult. Don't tell me your opinion. I don't want to know it. I want to know what? What's Jesus say? Okay, come on. All right, uh, Hebrews uh, 4 is where we're going to start. Excuse me, Ephesians 4 is where we're going to start. If you just want to listen, that's fine. I'm just going to read a couple verses. Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. This is Paul writing. Now, we're reading about Paul, and the last time we were here, we actually read about Paul, and he had a disagreement with who? Barnabas. All right, let's read this through that lens. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Is it possible Paul let unwholesome talk come out of his mouth when he was dealing with Barnabas? Oh, yeah. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. In that disagreement, if you listened last week or you're here last week, was Paul building up Barnabas? No. Was he building up John Mark? No. Is it possible that when he penned this in Ephesians that he was thinking of that situation? Oh, yeah. Okay. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that they may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do you think Paul grieved the Holy Spirit of God in that situation, disagreement, that fierce fight he had with Barnabas? I'd say so. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. I can only imagine that when Paul wrote this, he's literally thinking of the malice he had in his heart, the rage he had in his heart towards Barnabas and towards John Mark. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Now, don't tell me God doesn't use our sin to redeem it because I would actually say to you that probably most of what the Apostle Paul ended up writing and penning was actually as a result of areas where not he succeeded, but he... 
failed. Okay, flip over to Hebrews 12. We're going to start in verse 4, and here we will introduce this idea of discipline and take a look at it. Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as children? Here's what it says. My son, and you also need to read that as my daughter, but it's my son. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, flip that. If he doesn't discipline someone, what does it say? Come on. If he, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Now flip it back the other way. If he doesn't discipline you, he doesn't love you. Okay. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. If you're not chastened, you're not a child. I mean, get that. This is strong. Endure hardship as discipline. This is one of these, like if you're going to circle something, if you've got a paper Bible, circle that, highlight it. Endure hardship as discipline. Hardship is like a big, broad, huge category, is it not? Any hardship you can endure as discipline. That's what that says. All right, let's keep going. God is treating you as his children. Now, so again, if you're not in some hardship or if you're not under discipline at some point, you're not his Child, I mean, that, it is clear here. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate children at all. Moreover, we have all had parents who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? Okay, so let's tie this up. If you're not disciplined, you're not his child. If you don't experience discipline from time to time, then you are actually um, not his son or daughter. And then it goes on to actually say, endure hardship as discipline. Okay, so does that mean we can endure any and all hardship as discipline? We're into a, we're into a theological quagmire here. Is, and, I, and so here's what, here's what I'm going to bring you to this morning, is I think largely our concept of what it means to be disciplined by God is wrong. I think many of us have this view of God that he's out to get us, he is waiting for us to fail so that he can like spank us, he is waiting, the shoe's going to drop, the second one's going to get us, he is coming to get you, he is, he is out um, for you to fail, he is watching like angry, waiting for you to um, mess up so that he can come and get you. And I would actually uh, want to flip this and say, listen to me, God's discipline is the greatest sign of his love, it's the greatest sign of his actual um, kindness and his gracious. Now, let's flip the metaphor, because it's, like, um, it's almost like we can't even understand what we just read. All right, flip the metaphor. Um, many of us love to watch uh, football, baseball, soccer. Yeah? Okay, if we were to walk out onto a practice of um, a pro basketball or an NFL football or an NFL or a um, college football team, and if we were to sit there and watch from the sidelines, and if we noticed that the coach was being the hardest on one particular player, what do you think that would say about that player? 
is the coach going to take his time to be hardest on the player who warms the bench? Why not? I mean, come on now, go here. This is, it's like this limited way we even as Americans can understand this. God is, is not totally unlike a coach, and the, the analogy begins to break down. But when someone is enormously gifted or enormously talented or enormously called, they are going to get coached harder. So when someone is not called, not talented, not, not created, not whatever, are they going to get coached fiercely or hardly? No. So I want you to begin to see something that when the Spirit of God has a purpose for you or a plan for you, he has, and you, and you gotta also got to understand, we get so limited with this finite view that earth is about earth and like your house or your bank account or your boat or your experience or your vacation is all there is. This is like this short few, 60, 80, 100 years, whatever God ends up giving us is so short compared to the expanse of eternity. Everything here on planet earth is but training for eternity. Okay, you hear me? So when God is sovereignly disciplining you, and I'm still in process of like changing your paradigm of discipline, so, so hang with me. But when God is disciplining us, he is not only coaching us, let's think of that word maybe, it'll, it'll feel a little better for a minute, but he is not only coaching us to take the place and experience all of the things that he has called and created us here for on planet earth, but he's preparing us to co-rule and reign with him in eternity. You follow me? So it's like this, the, the coaching of God, the discipline of God, um, the hardship that God allows in our lives is actually preparing us for what he has for us. You follow me? Okay, um, go back uh, for a second um, to Michael's life. Just use my life as an example here for a minute. God, I believe, was sovereignly watching me, and I could tell you about a dozen, literally, about a dozen character flaws, um, cracks. Character flaws is not the right word. It sounds like I was working for it. Character cracks, sinful character cracks inside of my heart that set me up with a predisposition um, to join a cult. Really, I've done my hard work. So, but I believe God sovereignly looks down and says, I'm going to allow something in your life, my son. I'm not going to cause it. God is not the cause or the author of any evil. But I'm going to lift the boundary, if you will, of the enemy, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm going to lift the bound, and I'm going to allow you to get tempted and fall and be sifted. And in this sifting process, I'm going to allow you to see what is inside of you so that you stop clinging to your own performance and self-righteousness and can begin to come to me and experience the righteousness in the life of Christ. You follow me? Okay. Now, let's go back to Acts 16, and we're going to crack this open. Lord, give us wisdom as we read this, if I can find it in my Bible. Okay, Acts 16. Now, <clears throat> let me, let me um, just give you some, a, a biblical revelation here because it will help you. Uh, biblical principle. Many times biblical writers do not draw direct and clear explicit moral lessons. You follow me? 
so many times they're not going to say, this is what happened, and this is why it happened, and this is what was going on in the person's heart, and this is what was going on in God's heart. It's not spelled out quite that clearly. So we're going to look implicitly through this text this morning at what is implied. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, if I took us to the Old Testament and we looked about at um, Absalom's rebellion, that's King David's son, um, there is a clear link in the Old Testament between David's sexual sin with, Bathsh- with Bathsheba and his casual attitude towards the death of Uriah. You can go look this up if you want. And Absalom, his son's rebellion. But it never says it. Like there's nothing. It is implied in the text that the writer never says this is why it happened. In the book of Ruth, if we flipped it and made this more positive than that, because that feels so negative, but in the book of Ruth, it never says, this is what God did in Ruth's life next. No, no, no. It just says it was the time of the barley harvest, and Ruth went, and she ends up in this field of this guy named Boaz, and Boaz ultimately becomes her kinsman redeemer, which is a picture of the redeemer, right? So it doesn't um, explicitly say, look what God did. It just tells the story, okay? You following me? I could take you to another place, um, and it's in the book of Esther. And it doesn't even say in Esther, again, this is what God did, or this was um, his purpose. It merely said, uh, one night the king couldn't sleep. And then it unfolds this beautiful story of the redemption of Esther and the Jewish people. Take, take note here. So this is what I'm saying, is there is implicit truth in the text that we can begin to see. Okay? All right, let's read. Acts 16, I'm going to start in verse, uh, let's start in verse 6. Paul and his companions. Now, who are his companions? We got uh, Silas, remember, because he and Barnabas got in a huge fight. And we have Timothy, which we were, just happened in the first few verses there. We're going to go back to that next week. But Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So what are they doing? traveling. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So what did the Holy Spirit of God do? He stopped them. Doesn't say. Why did he stop them? What was going on in Paul's heart? What was going on in the churches? What was going on in these countries? We don't, it, it doesn't know. It just says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So what else just happened? Verse 8, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas, And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing there and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay, so what is implicit in this text? And I think Dr. Luke, even in his narration, wants you to read this. In fact, let me keep going. um, The end of verse uh, 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we, I want you to go back to verse 8. So they, look at verse 7, when they, verse 8, so they, verse 10, We, what in the world happened? Dr. Luke joined them. He's telling what they were doing, and then all of a sudden, Dr. Luke is now with them. But here's what I want you to see this morning. So Paul is wandering with Silas and Timothy with no sense of direction. 
He is wandering. So the last major thing that has happened is Paul and Barnabas get in this huge kerfuffle. Paul, I demonstrated last, last time we talked, that he was probably in sin. He reacts very poorly. So he is wandering, and he keeps trying to go one way, and the Holy Spirit of God says no. And then he goes another way, and the Holy Spirit of God says no. So if you, if you even looked at, at what they're doing, it's like closed doors. It's nothingness. It is empty, pointless wandering. They go north through Fergia and Galatia, and the Holy Spirit forbids them to go west into the province of Asia. Then they turn and they try to go through uh, Mysia and Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit of God again says no. Now, pause for a second. Where else in Scripture do you think or can you think of a group of people wandering aimlessly? Come on. If you're new to this Bible thing, just hang on. Come on, somebody tell me. In the Exodus. Okay. So I want you to get something now. In the Exodus, God delivers. It's actually the book of Exodus. Uh, God delivers through Moses the people of Israel. And it should have been this quick journey to the promised land. And yet through their own sin and willfulness and disobedience, it becomes this 40-year journey where they wander with no point and no destination. Place to place. They can't get in any country and they're just stuck in the... Desert. Now, I want you to look implicitly here. Paul tries to go here and God says no. Paul tries to go here and God says no. Paul tries to go here and God says no. Now, if I drew a map up here for you, Paul and Timothy and Silas have now at least traveled 300 miles. So like uh, context, um, it's a little over 300 miles to go from here to Knoxville, Tennessee. So, like, if you joined me tomorrow and we were going to walk to Knoxville, like, go there. That's what they're doing. And they're trying to minister along the way. And the Holy Spirit says, no. And then we go here and no. And so we are just wandering. There's no preaching. There's no teaching. There's no evangelism. Like, we set out to be these great evangelists and these great teachers and start all these churches. And yet the Spirit of God says, follow me? Now, if we were going to walk to Knoxville, Tennessee, and let's just say we did, like, 12, 13, 14 miles a day. It's going to take us 25 days. Serious. That's about what Paul's doing. So he's wandering. I don't know how long. It's not implicit um, or explicit, excuse me, in the text. But he is wandering for a season. And I want to actually um, say I believe implicit in this text and when I read Paul's writing on God's discipline in Hebrews and when I read his writing on um, how we are called to conduct ourselves as believers in Ephesians, I think what Dr. Luke is actually saying here is Paul was under the discipline of God. Because he tried to go in, tried to go in, tried to go in. Now, go to verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got up at once, uh, ready to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. If you looked at the story of Moses in the Old Testament, which I'm not going to fully do, but if we went back there and looked at it, Moses wandered in uh, his own desert for 40 years, from age 40 to age 80, tending sheep. And at the end of that wandering, there appeared to him a, 
a burning bush. And I would actually propose to you that this vision of the man of Macedonia is much like the burning bush in Moses' story. And in Moses' story, much like Paul's story, much like my story, probably much like your story, is there's this season where through our own willfulness and our own choices, we go our own way and we do our own thing. And God graciously says, go your way and do your thing. And by God's great grace, I will lift off this hedge of protection around you. You will experience certain things so that that in the end, you know, like he said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. When you're sifted, I pray that your strength or your faith would not fail you and that when you turn back to me, you will strengthen your brethren. That's the idea of what's happening here, I think, in Paul's life, certainly in Moses' life, certainly in Peter's life, and I would reckon that it is the same in your life and my life. And there are these seasons, even in our Christian journey, where God allows a discipline of difficulty or the discipline of hardship to bring us back to a place where we are um, surrendered or yielded to him and ready to go about things his way, not our way. Hebrews 5.8, this is crazy, you're making note of this, actually says, Jesus, in fact, I'm going to read it to you because it's so good. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Check this out. Uh, Son, though he was, this is capital S, son. Jesus, though he was, learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Hang on a second, hang on a second. Jesus is made perfect through his suffering. So when Jesus came to earth, he's fully God, he's fully human, he lives like us, he is facing every temptation, um, every difficulty, every emotion that you and I have experienced, every abuse, every hurt, every neglect, and yet he, unlike you and I, doesn't respond out of sin, he actually responds to the suffering and difficulty righteously, which is why he is able to go to a cross and become the Lamb of God, paying for my sin and your sin once and for all. Does that make sense? It's also why God raised him from the dead and why he was ultimately ascended into heaven. He was um, crowned the, the world's rightful sovereign. So if Jesus himself learned obedience through the difficult things in his life, how much more will you and I? You follow me? You're, you know, Michael, this is not a feel-good message today. It is. You have to wait for it. I promise. Okay, the only guidance Paul is getting is negative. They try to go this way, they try to go that way. If you use that same um, Israelite analogy, the Israelites are following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the same way that Paul is trying to follow the Lord Jesus this way and that through the desert. But these guys are wandering. um, And in the case of the Israelites in the Old Testament, God allowed them to wander until the entire older generation had perished. This is terrible. Because he wanted a people that would trust him and walk by faith. And when God said go, they would go. Now in Paul's case, I believe in these couple verses, what Dr. Luke is actually saying is, God let Paul wander because he is going, Paul, you are not going to win the known world and you're not going to take the gospel all the way to Europe by your own arrogance and your own angry attitude. 
And it is only when you can begin to surrender fully to the Lordship of Christ Jesus and the, and the God of heaven is able to work in you and through you that I can then use you to not only take the gospel to Europe, but to actually pen much of the New Testament, which became the very mouthpiece of Yahweh God for all Christians for all time. Now, in this moment, if we, like, looked at it, and this is so very important, like, it, it, is, it is so important. Um, in this moment, when Paul is wandering, is he a Christian? Yes! Now, get this, Christians here, saints of God. If a, if a, um, a, a, a wandering marauder came out and killed Paul in this moment, is he going to spend eternity in paradise with Jesus? Yes, but what's happening is he has grieved the Holy Spirit of God at some level, and the Holy Spirit of God is forming him and shaping him and saying, no, 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 you wander until you come to the end of yourself, and when you're good and ready, I will show you a burning bush, and when you are ready not to do your own will in your own way, but when you are ready to do my will in my way, I will give you this burning bush, this man of Macedonia in a vision, and I will release you to carry the gospel not only to Europe, but to write much of the Bible that became the very mouthpiece of Jesus for all time. I think it's the same thing in the life of Moses. We could argue it the same thing in the life of Peter. We could probably put it in context of your life and certainly in my life. So the conclusion of, um, or one of the things I love is we, we preach through Acts 15, and it's this big fight they got in is, are we saved by works or by grace? And if you remember, um, Galatians 2 was the cross-reference there. So Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but now Jesus lives in me and through me. And I would propose to you today that in this time where Paul is wandering this way and that way, experiencing closed doors, that at some level, I think he began to bow his knee and go, this is not my church. These aren't my people. This isn't my mission. This isn't my will. This isn't my way. And if you want to use Barnabas or you want to use John Mark or you want to use Apollos or you want to use Priscilla or you want to use Phoebe or you want to use Lydia, then I bow my knee before you and I agree with you that this is your gospel and you are the Lord of light and you are, you are the Lord of light and life, and you are the right sovereign over it, and I am not sovereign over my life, over these churches, over my ministry, over my destiny, and it is all about your kingdom, your will, and your way. Now, it's the very same thing that King Jesus came to in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think Jesus could have done what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is, God, I don't want to drink this cup. What cup? Death, suffering, hell, meaning separation from God. I don't want to drink this cup yet, not my will, but your will. Okay, same deal. I don't think Jesus could have arrived at that point if there wasn't some suffering, some discipline, some hardship in his life. Even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So that he came to the spot where he's in the garden, and I love it because his humanity speaks. Like, it gives me such hope as a human that Jesus sits before Yahweh God and goes, I don't want to do this. I don't like the call. It doesn't feel good. And yet, not my, but 
Same thing Paul came to in this moment, in his wanderings. And I would say, this is implicit again, I can't prove it, but I would propose to you that somewhere in the dark of the night, Paul got down on his knees and went, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for my anger and my arrogance with Barnabas, my anger and my arrogance with John Mark, the presumption that these churches are mine and this mission is mine. And Father, would you reveal to me and I not only surrender my heart, but my life and my finances and my future and my past, and it is yours, and now would you use me for your kingdom will and way, and would you use me to establish your glory? And suddenly, the vision of the man from Macedonia. Burning bush experience. And Paul gets up and goes, I'm glad the discipline's over. And he goes to preach. Okay. Couple questions, and we're heading towards... um, why do negative circumstances happen? Why does God discipline us? And then a takeaway or two for us. Okay, um, did God want Paul to wander and suffer? Absolutely not. Did God sovereignly know that Paul needed to if he was going to be brought to a place where it would be his kingdom will and way? Yes. There's a discipline, uh, a difference I would propose to you this morning between punishment and discipline. Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 12, starting in verse 4, doesn't say God punishes his sons. It says God disciplines. Discipline is what a loving, gracious, kind father does with his kids. And there is a, a punishment almost has a connotation of like anger um, or vengeance or wrath. And God's anger and his wrath and his punishment was extinguished on who? Jesus. You follow me? That's how Michael can stand on this stage and preach the gospel. It's how you can get up and preach the gospel. Because all of our sin was extinguished once and for all on the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus himself. Okay, now this is like so big, and I, I, this is like a tension to hold. I can't solve this problem for you, okay? But you've got to hold this tension. You must be very careful to assume that every negative circumstance in your life is discipline. You may not assume that. That is not biblical, okay? Listen to me here. It is not. Many Christians make this mistake, and they veer off of the pathway of grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, into this like uh, 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 self-righteousness or performance-based Christianity, and they lose the loving kindness and graciousness of God. So let's ask this question then. Why then do negative things happen? Because I think most of us, even as Christians, when something bad happens, we go, oh, what have I done? Wrong question. Right question Father, for what purpose have you allowed this and what do you want to do in and through my life as a result of it? See the difference? All right, why does God allow negative circumstances? Number one, we live in a fallen world. There are ongoing repercussions of sin and the sin nature in humans and governments and family systems. Open this door for just a minute. I've got two little girls with type 1 diabetes. Is that the result of my sin? Absolutely not. I have perhaps a genetic predisposition inside of me as a result of sin, as a result of the fall towards type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And I've got girls that have diabetes. Remember in, I think it's John, it's John 9 too, the, the people that came to Jesus and, and they were talking about the cripple guy and they were like, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. 
Neither. So when you begin to make these, these strong dotted lines between a negative circumstance in your life and your own sin or somebody else's sin, you're wrong. Listen to me. You are wrong. You're moving outside of the, the boundaries of Scripture. We live in a fallen world. Why do negative things happen? Because we live in a fallen world. In uh, Ephesians 2.2, I'm not going to read it, but write it down if you'd like. Ephesians 2.2 and John 12.31, both those, and there's a number of other scriptures. But Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air or of the earth. So who then is the ruler of the earth? Satan. So now, is he under the bookends of God's sovereignty? Of course Is God ultimately going to come back and flip and tear down his kingdom? And notice, he calls Satan a prince, not a king. And the Bible refers to Jesus as the Christ or the king, same word. So King Jesus, um, Christ Jesus, um, which is why I say Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, because I believe it's King Jesus. And Satan is much diminished. He's a prince, okay? But does he currently rule the world? How could terrible things be happening around this world and God be good? Because we live in a fallen world and because there is a prince of the power of the air who is the lord of darkness, the prince of darkness, if you will, and he is currently in control of this world. You hear me? Why do my little girls have type 1 diabetes? We live in a fallen world. Well, did Michael sin? Michael's got a lot of sin. You could make a real case, couldn't you? Come on, I started out this way, and that's why I started out this way. God has sifted my heart again and again and again on this. Father, but it is absolutely theological error to go, I am suffering something, whatever it is, and therefore it is the result of my sin or my parents' sin or somebody else's sin. It's the result of the fall of humankind. And governments are under the fall. People are under the fall. Marriages are under the fall. People's self-will and self-way and their carnal self-love is under the fall. And all sorts of evil things happen, not because God is the author of it, because God is so rich in his love that he gives freedom, even freedom for evil, people to do evil things now slight twist every one of us has the capacity and potential for evil inside of us and we are only saved by grace alone through faith alone by Christ alone to the glory of God alone amen Why do negative circumstances happen? Number one, we live in a fallen world. Number two, God at times removes his hand of prevention and protection and allows something that will accomplish his greater good and his greater glory. Read uh, Job, I think it's 1.8. Job 1.8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. There are times in the next few verses, God actually um, removes the heads of protection over Job's life and and, uh, the enemy inflicts him with all manner of evil. So why do negative circumstances happen? We live in a fallen world. At times, God removes his hand, um, or secondly, the enemy is the current ruler of the world. Thirdly, at times, God removes his hand of um, prevention or protection uh, over our lives. Now, Let me throw out this too. And there's tensions here, guys, and you're just going to have to live in them. I can't solve all the problems. This isn't a neat little cliche sermon where I can give you a soundbite and you can go post it on the, what was formerly known as Twitter. Thank you. Okay. Here's the New Testament principle. Ready? New Testament principle. 
suffering and difficulty is oftentimes the proof that the blessing and favor of God is on your life. <laughs> not only is difficulty not or suffering or pain not the punishment of God, it is oftentimes the proof that the blessing and favor of God is on your life. When Ananias was sent to, I realize I'm pulling all sorts of scripture here, but when Ananias was sent to pray over the apostle Paul when he was still known as Saul and his eye, he had these scales on his eyes, God actually said to Ananias, see how much this man will suffer for my name. Was the apostle Paul anointed? Yes. Was he called? Yes. Was he commissioned? Yes. Did he live largely a righteous life before God? Yes. Was he arguably the most powerful theologian and minister of the gospel of Christ Jesus ever? Yes. But still, he was called to suffer, and the proofs in some ways of his anointing and calling was the very suffering. Okay, let me shift here because I want to tie this together. Why then does God discipline us? I'm not going to have time to flesh this out as much as I would. But why then does God discipline us? Number one, he disciplines us for training. Preparation to co-rule and co-reign with him both on earth and in heaven. Come on. Secondly, he disciplines us to prove us, not so that we fail. He knew that for seven years, what would Michael do? I know better than you. I'm going to go my own way. I have the answer, not you. I'm going to listen to what I want to do when I want to do it, and I'm going to go this way, and I'm going to deceive myself and convince myself that I'm doing the right thing. And God says, I'm going to prove this young man by allowing him to be sifted like wheat. And Michael, when you turn, strengthen your brothers and sisters. So number one, God disciplines us for training. Number two, God disciplines us to prove us. Number three, God disciplines us for correction. Did Paul wander 300 miles? Could we make a case that that was God's discipline? Yes. Let me say again, though, be very careful. You do not assume that every negative circumstance in your life is a result of discipline. It might be that the negative circumstance in your life is because you are called and commissioned and have a purpose and a destiny and God has allowed something difficult in your life to shape you and prepare you to co-rule and co-reign. Fourthly, God disciplines us for dependence. Even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay, I've got two takeaways. They're just very practical. Most of us as Christians spend our life looking for encouragement that what we're doing is good and right. We hate negative feedback, don't we? Come on. I want you to flip that narrative, okay? I, I lead this little group of guys, we call it a Jesus Journey Discipleship Group, and one of the things that they just did is they had to, to go to their spouse and go, hey, spouse, where am I falling short of God's best? Where, where am I falling short of God's kingdom, his will, and his way? And I would want to call us as a church, instead of being hard-headed and spending our lives being defensive and like hiding our sin, I don't want to tell everybody I've been in a cult. I don't want to tell everybody that I've been married before. No, 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 no. Start coming clean before the Christ. If you want to be in rich relationship with God and rich relationship with people, stop hiding stuff. Bring that stuff into the light. And then as you bring it into the light, the other thing that I would call you as a church, call us as a church to begin to do, is look at people we trust and say, where? 
where do you see that I am falling short of God's kingdom will and way? When was the last time you looked at somebody who wasn't a yes person in your life and said, honestly, look me in the eyes and help me see my life through the lens of heaven, through your lens, and where do you see that I am falling short of God's kingdom will and way? And nine times out of ten, if that's a trusted person in your life, guess what they'll tell you? Oh, it'll be good. My recommendation, get out your pencil and shut your, and just listen. Just listen. Because you will get a nugget that is like heaven itself inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number one, ask, where am I falling short? Number two, hear me, church, stop seeing difficulty as punishment from an angry God where you are falling short and start seeing discipline as God's forging. You are clay on the great potter's wheel and he is shaping you and he is forming you. And when he has to put pressure on that pot to shape it or to form it or to change it, it is like discipline, like a coach training a star athlete because he is creating you and fashioning you to rule here on earth and rule in eternity. Somebody say amen. That's preaching way better than y'all are responding. (laughs) God is not an angry God who is out to get you. God is a kind and generous and gracious and loving God who wants to shape you and form you so that you can fulfill all the purposes of heaven in and through your life. Start viewing, therefore, every hardship in your life as an act of a loving, gracious God that is shaping you to become all that he created you to be. You hear me? Come on, church. Believe in his goodness. Believe in his kindness. Believe in his gentleness. And trust that he, no matter how difficult your path is, is taking you down the most kind and gracious and gentle path possible to get you where you need to go. You're sitting there today and you might go, well, gosh, Michael, you must have been a real hardhead. Amen and amen. Shape me, Lord Jesus. Form me. Jesus. Rick, thanks for coming out. We're going to end this. Prayer team, if you would make yourself available up front. Let's do a couple things this morning as we close. First of all, some of you have probably never heard a pastor be that straight and honest. That might be a deal. And some of you might be sitting there going, I want that level of freedom. And I want to invite you to get out of your seat and come forward, whether you pray with someone or not, whether you just stand here and worship. But take a decisive step to go, I want to be in deeper, more significant relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and with people. And I'm going to take the step of beginning to be honest with what's really going on inside of me. Second thing, some of you might be here and you've never truly given your life to this Jesus or you've never understood the gospel, that it's good news for broken sinners like you and me and that he makes us righteous, he makes us saints, it's his work. And if you've never prayed to surrender your life, fully giving him control and lordship over your life, I wanna pray with you. There's no magic words, but I'm gonna stand right here next to Joyce. Come down and pray with me. For the rest of us, let's stand. And as we stand, let's let the Holy Spirit sift our hearts and upgrade our view of what his kindness and lovingness and discipline even means. Will you do that with me?
Stand up. Father, we praise you that you resurrect the Lazarus, that you restore the woman at the well, that you call Zacchaeus from hiding up in the tree down to eat with you, that you resurrect immature, arrogant disciples who are fighting over who is the greatest. Father, we praise you that your kingdom and your will and way extends far beyond our human understanding. And Father, I praise, pray for every person in this room, online, that you would meet them powerfully and they would experience the resurrection power of you, Lord Jesus. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And Lord, I pray that the joy of the Lord as we go would be our strength, that the laughter of the redeemed would echo off these walls. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We're so glad you've listened in with us here at Saltbox, and we'd love to get to know you better. So we hope you'll stay in touch and get more involved by joining us on the YouTube live stream. We hope you have a great week, and we encourage you to keep digging into your faith, because at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less.